0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. Uh, I'm Manish Rath here at the law firm Keller & Heckman, and, uh, and this is the OSHA 3030. We've been doing this for uh, an, you know, certainly seven years. Uh, this is uh, somewhere around our 78th episode, and it is a webinar and podcast that within 30 minutes we try and cover a developmental area of OSHA law about every 30 days. So with that said, our topic today is a, a fascinating case from the 11th Circuit, a decision that was issued by the 11th Circuit, and it involves use of the Unpreventable Employee Misconduct Defense in uh, defense of a citation under the Machine Guarding Standard. Uh, fortunately, this topic is something that's well known to my colleague, Larry Halperin, and I'm grateful to be joined by Larry today. Larry, welcome.
1: Thank you, Manish. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Oh, It's my pleasure because as many of our listeners uh, in the OSHA 3030 community know, uh, Larry, you're one of the deans of OSHA law a- at the federal OSHA law level as well as in state plan states anywhere in the country. And and in particular, your, your experience in not only machine guarding matters, but as well machine guarding matters with food manufacturers, which is essentially what we have here, uh, is extremely valuable. So, Larry, as I said, we've we've been doing this for about 78 episodes, and all of the prior episodes are libraried on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Uh, as well, this program is rebroadcast as a podcast, so you should subscribe if you get a chance on your favorite podcast streaming uh, app, which would include uh, either uh, iTunes or the podcast app for Apple, as well as SoundCloud, Spotify, Uh, all carry the OSHA 3030 now. Uh, So with that said, why don't we get into first a discussion of what we're going to talk about in the context of this case. It's a a food manufacturing site, and it was a, a sanitation company that was working on site at the food manufacturer's uh, client site. Uh, so, why don't we first talk about the background facts of this case? And since it involves the machine guarding standard, it would be helpful to first level set everyone on the basics of the machine guarding standard. The employer implemented a defense of the uh, unpreventable employee misconduct defense. We should talk about that a little bit. And then talk about how the employer used the unpreventable employee misconduct case defense in order to argue their uh, defense in this particular case uh, before going to the administrative law judge's decision and then the 11th Circuit's decision in this case. And then finally, as we always uh, do, we should wrap up with practical takeaway items uh, for what employers should do in light of this case. So with that said, Larry, should I get us started with the facts?
1: Sure. Go
0: ahead. So the, the case in question is Packers Sanitation Services Incorporated versus OSHA, or the Secretary for, uh, for the Department of Labor. And essentially, Packers Sanitation Services is a sanitation service that, that targets the poultry industry. They were working in this particular case at a client site, Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Pride, in Gainesville, Georgia. And the way they work is that the production staff work the day shift, the production staff leave, and then Packers, Sanitation Services Incorporated's staff come in on the evening shift and clean the equipment down
1: every day on, on every daily yeah. production cycle. Yeah, so the production is actually two shifts. So It's probably day in the afternoon, evening, and then the night shift, which starts at 11 p.m. is when Pilgrim's mm-hmm. people leave the, the floor and the Packers people come on, and they do this basically every day. So right. they're, they're a dedicated contractor that's on site all the time. Yeah.
0: After the production's done, two shifts, they come in. Essentially, it's the third shift, as you're saying, right. and cleans down. And then the next day, the work, the production shifts come in and mess it up again. And it goes on. And so they, they're they coming in to the picking room in particular in this case, where there's one machine called a quill puller, the uh, purpose of which is to remove the tail feathers from the bird. And the quill puller has two rotating augers. And every day, the sanitation crew comes in and cleans down the the quill puller, including those two rotating augers. And poultry, I think poultry processing is, in general, a pretty messy business to begin with. There's feathers everywhere. Feathers actually tend to stick Uh, as well as all of the deposits that are essentially fats uh, and proteins tend to stick to things. And so the sanitation process is involved and requires a thorough cleaning. The sanitation employees in this particular case would come in and clean the quill puller in two steps. The first was to use a hose and blast the augers in what's called step one, a knockdown step. And then in step two, would engage in more fine-tuned cleaning. In the particular facts, in this case, they didn't really describe what the fine-tuned cleaning would look like.
1: No, you, you just understand that generally in food, you can't sanitize until you are first adequately cleaned thoroughly. So basically, you knock down all the particles, then you probably have to do some scrubbing, and then some sort of a sanitizer or soap application, and then a rinse to get the whole process done and the equipment ready to be go back into production. So this is just really the very first step of knocking down what you'd call large particles or pieces of material that are caught on the machine.
0: Right. And in this particular case, one day an employee was engaged in that first knockdown stage and was hosing down the, the two uh, screw augers and, and was a little too close. And, and the augers caught the employee's glove And what happens in these instances is it happens so fast that before you can process that your glove got caught, your hand is already getting pulled in. the here's the other interesting thing. And Larry, as you know, we've handled a case almost exactly like this. You would think that if the glove gets caught, that it would get whisked off the hand. But if it happens fast enough, it pulls the whole hand in before there's any time for the glove to come off the hand. In other words, the friction for the glove to the hand is strong enough that if it happens quickly enough, the whole hand gets pulled in. The and other the-
1: thing that happens is it's the same kind of activity. Somebody's cleaning with a rag. The rag gets caught in the machine, and instead of letting it go, the person's natural reaction is to hold on to it. And the same thing happens with a hose, where you get the hose, and maybe the diameter of the hose is too small, where there's hoses being used all over the plant, and the is not high enough, so somebody moves the hose closer to the machine in order to get more force on it. Without moving their
0: hand, they just feed the hose a little closer.
1: And then, you know, everything happens and that's the hose gets
0: caught in and then then the hand gets pulled in with it.
1: We've had a case like that too. Yeah. And
0: essentially what's happening is the the reflex is not fast enough to let go. The hand's already caught in the machine. In this particular case this employee's finger was amputated. You all know, for those of you who are regular listeners to the OSHA 3030, we've discussed before that amputations are one of the events that trigger a requirement to immediately self-report to OSHA, uh, but that is merely as an aside. Here in this case, OSHA uh, did conduct an investigation some eight days after the incident, and uh, when they did, they, they issued a citation for a machine guarding violation under Section 212. Actually, two other citations, but, but the purposes that for which we're gathered today uh, our OSHA citation under the machine guarding standard. So OSHA issued a citation uh, after conducting an inspection, and th- during the inspection, the the representative for for Packers essentially stated that they had a work rule at the at the work site that employees were required to stay at least two feet away from the active quill puller when it's running, and that that work rule was merely hard and fast rule that had to be observed by everybody. And that's why the machine guarding standard w- didn't apply, that the, the guarding wasn't necessary because all employees were supposed to observe this rule, this essentially work rule. Uh, the the representative for Packers also reported to the Compliance Safety and Health Officer that in that particular instance, the employee whose hand had gotten caught in the machine had violated that rule. And that's how it happened. He had violated the rule by stepping inside the two-foot zone of danger, essentially. When the folks at Packer issued a notice of contest and it became essentially an administrative challenge, like litigation, there was a discovery phase. And in response to interrogatories interposed by OSHA, uh, Packer's written response to an interrogatory was that employees generally did not clean equipment while it was actively running, while the equipment was actively running.
1: But let's be clear. They did not say, on the other hand, that you always had to lock out. That, that's really the point in this, in this interrogatory response. It says generally, you don't clean it while it's running. You're supposed to stay two feet away, but there's no requirement to always lock out the machine.
0: That's an incredibly important point. Thank you, Larry. They didn't say that they they were required to lock it out at that juncture when they were responding to interrogatories. Mm -hmm. They only said generally employees don't do it. They don't clean it while the machine's running. Uh, Thank you, Larry. I think that's a very important point because later at trial, at the hearing, Packer employees testified that employees were required to lock out when cleaning equipment. And Immediately, the attorneys for Rosha objected and stated that this was uh, new, a new theory and that the, the testimony should not be admitted because it constituted unfair surprise.
1: Right, because it was conflicting with the previously provided interrogatory response, which basically said that generally you don't clean with the equipment running, but clearly implying that there's no requirement to lock it out every
0: time. Yeah, the word, that's right. I, th- I agree. I think the word generally is unfortunately quite telling. Uh, because it wasn't stated as an absolute, and as you pointed out earlier, there was no mention of lockout/tagout in that written response. So, so let's talk about the machine guarding standard. Uh, Section 212 itself is is fairly brief. It essentially states that an employer must provide a method, one or more methods, for machine guarding to protect not only the operator of the machine but any other employee uh, in the area of the hazard. Uh, from any hazards that might be created by the machine, from its point of operation, from ingoing nip points, rotating parts, or from flying chips or sparks. Uh, Here, I think that these twin augers would have constituted an in-running nip point. Mm -hmm. And, in in fact, it was that in-running nip point that caught the glove and and pulled it in. Uh, I'll also point out a fairly obscure interpretation letter that I don't think was subject uh, to discussion by the administrative law judge or the 11th Circuit. But I I picked it up and thought it was worth at least acknowledging that OSHA had issued a letter of interpretation uh, almost 30 years ago now uh, that was specific to the poultry industry. And it acknowledged that, at at least at that time, 1992, that machine guarding For the poultry industry, for a lot of poultry industry equipment had not yet been developed, and that they acknowledged that it would be impractical to both properly guard the machine and use the machine at the same time. Uh, Of course, machine guarding as a question of design is constantly evolving or changing, and so I'm certain that there are a great many guard designs out now that were implemented since 1992. But the question I think is still interesting. Larry, as to how to get the product running through the machine and for the purposes of packer sanitation, how to effectively clean the machinery uh, with guarding that would satisfactorily prevent uh, incidental exposure to an area of hazard.
1: Well, the interesting thing is, although I might have missed it, I did take a look and it did not look like Pilgrim's Pride was cited. so it appears that whatever operational procedure was followed, theoretically, OSHA determined it was adequate for purposes of the production lines when they were in operation, but they weren't happy with what was happening in the cleaning stage when apparently they were concluding that circumstances were different and birds weren't going to have to go through the line at the time, and therefore there wasn't a need to operate the machinery in the same way, and theoretically, guarding was possible even if it wasn't practical during the production phase.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. It's difficult to understand how, if there was no guarding for the sanitation workers, uh, that there could have possibly been guarding of any kind for the, for the production workers. But, but you're right. That is the, one of the first questions that came up in my mind is why, first of all, Pilgrim's Pride was not also cited, or if they were, uh, how they would have proposed to def- have defended against that citation. So before we get into Packer's explanation of its use of the unpreventable employee misconduct defense, let's talk about that defense first for a little while. It's a difficult defense to establish, I will say, uh, because there are four elements that need to be established uh, in order to, to raise a claim of unpreventable employee misconduct. First, an employer has to be able to prove that there is an established work rule. And that the work rule itself is adequate to prevent exposure to a hazard or to prevent a violation of a standard. Second of all, an employer has to be able to show that it has effectively communicated this work rule to workers. I think this is a tough one because uh, compliance safety and health officers tend to interview a lot of employees uh, to try and drum up evidence that at least a few of them hadn't heard of the rule or didn't think it was in use or didn't recollect their training, etc. And if you ask enough people, you'll find eventually a witness to say what you need them to. Uh, that's been my experience. So so the third element that an employer would need to prove is that it had engaged in ongoing monitoring. So now it has a rule, and it has communicated the rule to employees. It also has to establish that it went onto the shop floor while workers were working on a regular basis with reasonable frequencies, or intervals, and monitored for compliance with their work rule. And finally, they have to be able to show that to the extent that they ever found violations of their work rule, that they have a record of discipline. And if they can't show that last element, uh, I've found that uh, the folks at OSHA are very reluctant to believe that there was indeed an example of unpreventable employee misconduct. Uh, Oftentimes, employers have argued, in my experience, that If they didn't have a record of effective discipline, it's because nobody violated the rule, to which OSHA's response would be that may be then a failure in the third element, which would be if you didn't have any examples of failures uh, to comply with the rule, maybe you weren't monitoring close enough. When you add the two up, it essentially amounts to uh, a consistent position that I've seen that OSHA doesn't believe that employee misconduct is likely to be the sole reason for a violation. And they continue to want to look for examples of uh, employer failure in addition to potential employee misconduct. Uh, and for this reason, I think it's a very tough defense to raise successfully. Larry, what's been your experience?
1: You're right about that. It's certainly frowned upon by OSHA. They always think it's either a lack of training or employer pressure for improved production that causes employees to take shortcuts or potentially just not be paying enough attention, whatever the whatever the reason is, it's certainly not one that they embrace very often. They have to be really overwhelmed almost to the point where an employee has done something grossly negligent or worse. And at that point, then maybe then they, they go along with the idea. But they, usually, that's what it takes.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that that may... Just off the cuff, suggest that maybe one of the things that employers can do is implement a robust uh, or rigorous uh, post-incident and post-accident drug and alcohol testing program, because those may be the rare cases where OSHA may acknowledge some element of misconduct. But, but I think that another doctrine that underlies a lot of uh, OSHA cases is that they, they believe that misconduct is just sort of a prevalent and extant feature of the workplace that the employer is obliged to find uh, protections against. And so, for
1: example, we had a case where an employee stuck a hand into a rotary valve to clean something out which was an impossibility because the jam was on the other side of the valve. and They weren't authorized to do it, and they were doing something on their own. It was clearly marked. They had to disassemble some equipment to do it, and then they didn't tell honestly what had happened. They suggested that something had flown out of the chute instead of them actually sticking their hand in. But when the, the um, employee's fingernails were traced up through the dust that was inside, and you could see what happened. Um, OSHA was convinced that was misconduct, but, you know, it, it takes something takes a lot significant. Of,
0: yeah, something and a lot of happen. diligent research into the facts. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. So that's the Unpreventable Employee Misconduct Defense. Packer, when issued with a citation for alleged violation of Section 212 machine guarding, they they interposed two arguments. One— the un- unpreventable employee misconduct rule, which was in this particular case that that employee would not have been exposed to a hazard by that those augers had the employee complied with that two-foot work rule, uh, that it was his own mistake to have crossed that two-foot line. Uh, the other defense that Packers raised was that the employee should have followed the employer's lockout-tagout rule, which required employees... To shut down the machine and lock it out before engaging in either of the two cleaning steps, the hose based knockdown step as well as the more thorough follow up step two. Uh, thus, the machine guarding standard was effectively preempted by Packers' compliance with a more specific standard, in this case, the lockout tagout standard. So that was their defense. When the administrative law judge uh, reviewed the rule reviewed the defense and as well when it was appealed to the 11th circuit by packers those two uh, tribunals handled these two arguments uh, in much the same way in fact the 11th circuit essentially affirmed the administrative law judge's decision uh, as to the 2 foot rule the 11th circuit said well when you look at the machine guarding requirement it inherently contemplates the possibility of inadvertence or inattention uh, and accidental trans, uh, transgression of the two-foot work rule. And it's possible for a passerby or a worker to, in a moment of inattentiveness or, or Larry, as you would said, maybe they're leaning in or extending a, a piece of equipment too far, close to the machinery, uh, to, to have break that, broken that rule without intending to. And machine guarding is de- the machine guarding standard is deliberately designed to protect against those kinds of exposures. So, so we don't accept this two-foot work rule in the context of the machine guarding standard.
1: Uh, yeah, let me I- point out, as we, we talked about earlier, if you had a very simple conveyor in a straight line and somebody was shooting a hose at it, you might be able to make a better argument. But in this case, it was a machine that, according to the compliance officer, you had to contort your body around to get it from the side and underneath and on the top and basically by the time an individual was getting into all those different positions there's a much better chance that you kind of lose track of where you are because your focus is on shooting a hose into a location and not paying as much attention to where your body is.
0: Well that's right and the clothes that are worn are baggy, the hairnet is is baggy or uh, fluffy These aren't uh, clothing like a time trialist in a a cycling event. They're they're all over the place and can easily get caught, even when the employee is being careful to keep his body away from those augers. Uh, And I think that that the administrative law judge and the 11th Circuit, frankly, uh, used an analysis that that at least uh, resonates with common sense that the machine guarding standard is designed in part to protect against that inadvertent Transgression of the two-foot worker rule, or tr- just accidentally getting too close to a machine that needs needs guarding,
1: and the and the bottom line there is essentially that the machine guarding standard is generally interpreted to require some sort of a physical device, and the idea of guarding by location is something you use rarely and generally when nothing else is feasible, at least in a case where there's general access. If you got a room with limited access, and you basically lock it out before you go in. That's a different story, but, again, here. Uh, the general rule is you've got to have some sort of physical guard, whether it's a barrier or it's a light curtain or whatever else it is. Right. Something more than a, simply a work rule.
0: Right. A two-foot two zone might make sense if there was an interlocking optical eye, a light curtain. I agree. We, That's we, a good we point. We don't
1: know what would have happened if the employer had simply had a bar it was two feet out, which would have at least forced an employee to reach past the bar. And maybe that would have been enough of a warning. I don't know. That Ideally, you'd want something that prevents anybody from sticking their hand where it doesn't belong to make it sort of foolproof. Right. That's the general trend these days to the extent it can be accomplished. But in any event. They didn't even, as the court and both the LJ mentioned, there wasn't even a line painted on the floor. There was absolutely nothing to mark the two-foot zone. And the comment was that requiring an employee to be trained to rely on mental attention to stay two feet away was not adequate.
0: Right. And then something that doesn't even deserve mention, but two feet, two feet's not even close to being enough. If the arm reach is longer than two feet, I'm not sure... Anybody should be satisfied by a two-foot work rule.
1: I I think they meant no part of the body within two feet. I don't think no, they were right. standing, but it, it wasn't very clear. In right. any event, uh, the, the courts and the LJs have basically said, you need some physical measure and you can't rely on telling somebody to stay back. And if you do that, you're going to be in trouble. And sooner or later, somebody through inadvertence or lack of attention, whatever else it is, is going to get themselves where they don't belong.
0: As happened here. So the second argument about uh, Packer's requirement that employees lock out the machinery uh, remember that at the hearing, OSHA objected and said, "Well, that's inconsistent with the interrogatories that Packers had filed, saying that generally employees were required to uh, were not were not expected to uh, engage in cleaning with the machine running." That doesn't actually
1: mean they had to lock it out. That could have mean they just turned it off. Right. So, that's right. So that there there are a couple of issues there.
0: Indeed, uh, as to that argument, the ALJ and the Eleventh Circuit, in affirming the ALJ essentially stated that Packer's interrogatory responses, uh, which stated a, a use of the word generally, indicated a preference and not a requirement, and that it was appropriate for the administrative law judge to exclude evidence about a lockout tagout requirement that had only emerged for the first time at hearing testimony and had not been described in in the interrogatory response, and it was, in fact, apparently conflicting with the interrogatory response. Larry, you make a good point uh, in our earlier discussions about this case when you say that the administrative law judge went one step further and said essentially what they're arguing is that they were complying with a more specific standard, the lockout-tagout standard comp- and compliance with it would have preempted the need to comply with Section 212, the machine guarding standard. And that argument of uh, preemption by compliance with a more specific standard, uh, the ALJ held was a an affirmative defense. And as an affirmative defense, needed to be raised at the affirmative defense stage, which is at the pleading stage when an answer is filed. That's mm-hmm. a very good point you bring up, Larry. And, and, and I think um, it's hard to get around that Packers... Probably formulated its testimonial evidence way too late after it had formulated its theories of the case, and that's not the order in which it should be done.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if it turns out it's not an affirmative defense, um, there was both the answer and then there was a joint statement of issues, and it wasn't raised in either one of them. So to wait till trial and then try to contradict the answer into an interrogatory, uh, you're treading dangerous ground, that's for sure. Yeah,
0: it's a classic error. I've seen it many, many times by the that that the trial strategy is developed in preparation for the trial, and it really needs to be developed at the time that the theory of the case is developed, which is at the very beginning. And you just have to be more thorough at the beginning of a case in preparing these defenses. So, which brings us to our last subject of the uh, half hour, which is what employers should do in light of the Packers' decision. Well, I think the first thing employers need to do is to create a record that there are – to the extent that there are any machine guarding requirements, create a record as to what which requirements belong to a host employer and which requirements are ones that the employer himself can comply with, itself can comply with, and that the employer tried to communicate – to the host employer their requirements and note any deficiencies to the host employer and
1: ask them to, to remediate. Mm-hmm. I mean we could be in a situation although it seems like with a little more investigation it might have gone a little differently OSHA apparently concluded that the host employer's activities during production were okay but the cleaning employers in the third shift were not for the same piece of equipment that apparently from what we can tell by implication wasn't guarded at all. Um, so the problem here is that the, the host employer and the contractor needed to get together along with the safety and the quality assurance people to figure out what type of cleaning needed to be done that would satisfy the, basically an FDA, good manufacturing practices, and then based on that decide either the machine had to be locked out, could be locked out and effectively cleaned or couldn't be locked out and then effectively cleaned. And if it couldn't be locked out, then somebody had to come forward and say, okay, what kind of guarding are we gonna put in place that's gonna provide adequate protection to the people doing the cleaning work, and who's gonna pay for it? And assuming it wasn't in there, you could either retrofit the equipment, which is very expensive, or you come up with some sort of temporary barrier, even if it's only a, a fence that you erect and shoot a hose through it, at least there's something. Ideally, you'd retrofit the equipment, but whether anybody's going to spend the money, I don't know. I don't know what the result of the abatement measure was, but you know, obviously, it takes some coordination between quality and safety when you're talking about a food manufacturing facility to make sure that you comply with the manufacturing practices and don't end up with microbiological contamination problems because you haven't effectively cleaned the equipment. And At the same time, you've got to protect the employees who are doing the job. So either Automate the whole thing with the cleaning in place system, or you put some sort of permanent guards in. Ideally, I mean, some of our clients certainly have multiple guards. They have a basically a a fence type with two by two inch holes in it that you can shoot a hose through during cleaning. And then, if the process actually would otherwise project food ingredients out onto the floor of a factory. Uh, create a problem, then you end up with a solid guard that goes on top of the guard with the the mesh holes in it. Uh, Other people, like I said, have put automated equipment in. But one way or another, you need to protect people and be able to clean the equipment properly. If you decide the equipment should be locked out, then You need to identify the equipment that's going to be locked out. If you've got equipment that's not going to be locked out because it can't be cleaned effectively, it needs to be specifically identified. You need to identify the specific procedure in writing of how you're going to alternatively clean it and still protect employees. There's got to be training for it. That's got to be documented. And then every once in a while, like you said, on an appropriate basis, somebody's going to have to walk through and make sure it's being done the way it's supposed to do. And if it isn't being done, check whether the training was adequate or whether the people were properly trained and aren't doing it properly, despite the training, in which case they need to be disciplined.
0: Yeah, I think that record of discipline is really critical because in case after case, I've seen that's where employers have have not been able to make one of the four elements. It's, it's all oftentimes with uh, the failure to, to document those reprimands. A lot of times it's just a verbal reprimand, and the supervisor or the safety and health uh, professional just walks on by. But I think that they've got to take good notes on those, and those notes are sufficient documentation of reprimands. So it doesn't have to be a full-blown disciplinary action. It can be a simple verbal reprimand recorded in, in daily notes. Uh, the other thing th- that we were talking about earlier, moving to the trial itself, uh, I think employers, before they they issue an answer, identify their affirmative defenses, s- uh, develop their statement of the issues of the case uh, and stipulations as well as discovery responses. Uh, they they really f- need to first come down to a thorough preliminary investigation of the facts and use those investigated facts to develop their full. Trial case theory of the case, and use that to guide their responses to discovery. Use that to guide to, to guide them in drafting affirmative disp- defenses, etc. Um, however, Larry, yeah. I will point out that if they they later, as the case evolves, their their theory evolves with it. It's not necessarily too late to amend discovery responses. Indeed, I'd argue the opposite that the duty to uh, supplement discovery responses as an ongoing duty right up to the mm-hmm. to the date trial sure
1: i'm speculating it could simply be that this was the uh, cleaning company's way of pointing out the pilgrim's pride that they needed to do something by taking the case all the way up to the court of appeals and even though they didn't prevail then once that decision was issued it was obvious something had to be done and that the two-foot rule wasn't going to work anymore. Uh,
0: that's a good theory. I think the, a memo to Pilgrim's Pride would have sufficed. But I, I will offer that that the two-foot rule, since you mention it, is, is one where I, I would count on an employer's qualified OSHA council to vet some of these defenses and give honest feedback as to whether or not th- a defense like a two-foot work rule where there's, as you m- noted, not even a painted line on the floor is worth the expenditure of the resources that Packers must have expended in bringing this case, not only all the way through to a hearing, but uh, then appealing it to the 11th Circuit. So I think you're, you're raising a really good point there. With that said, uh, Larry, I think you got the last word on today's OSHA 3030. And, uh, and I think that that was a, one of those cases where there's just a lot of lessons you can learn from it. I, I seldom have such a full slide on, on the what employers should do section. Well, that's it for today. More information on uh, OSHA developments in between OSHA 3030s can be ca- caught on our Twitter account at Rathmonish or LinkedIn. Larry Halpern has a LinkedIn account, so does David Servati, Javanay Nakumarim, as well as me, several of our OSHA attorneys, as well as the Workplace Safety and Health uh, LinkedIn page for Keller and Heckman generally. This program will be put up as a podcast uh, sometime later today and uh, will be posted as slides and audio on our website, khlaw.com OSHA3030 sometime in the next one or two business days. Uh, Our next OSHA 3030 program is set for Wednesday, February 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. More information about that can be found at khlaw.com. And when you get that invitation, please remember to forward it on to three other people. Even if you've already forwarded it on to three, try and find three more people to forward it on to to spread the good word about the OSHA 3030. Uh, If you're in an industry that involves compliance with Tosca or REACH or FIFRA, You should know that we have sister programs, the TOSCA 3030, REACH 3030, and FIFR 3030. More information about those uh, on this slide. Uh, The next TOSCA and and REACH 3030s are on February 12th. Well, thank you all for participating in this OSHA 3030 episode. On behalf of Larry Halperin and all of my colleagues here at Keller and Heckman, we're grateful to you for your support of the program, and we look forward to seeing you again next month. Until then, stay safe.